If you're, if you're just joining us for the, this is your first Sunday here, you've caught us in the middle of a little mini-series we're doing, um, and we're looking at the subject of worship. And uh, I'm going to carry that on um, this morning. And I shared a little bit last week about a lady who made a real impact on me when I met her. She, her, she was from North Korea, and she'd become a Christian in North Korea. And um, in North Korea, if you become a Christian and people find out, then you get really, really badly persecuted. And so, um, unfortunately for her, it was discovered, and she was sent to a, what they call a re-education camp for three years. It was a concentration camp. And uh, I mentioned her last week because she led some people to Jesus in the camp, and they would go and worship together. And they would worship in um, the toilet because it was disgusting. It was horrendous, and it stank. And so the guards didn't want to go anywhere near it. So that's the only place they could go to sing songs in the way that we have just been doing. Uh, for them, the only place they could do that freely was in the toilet. But they would go and they would worship in that place. And uh, she shared more of her story. And one of the things that has lodged in my mind, um, really, ever since she shared it, was she talked about also how they were in the dinner hall one, one day. And um, they were given their tiny portion of food that they were allowed. And as she's sitting there with a really small portion of food, she felt like the Lord spoke to her and said, I want you to share your food. And had that been me, um, my response would have been, no, Lord, no, no, no. Um, I, I would have said, haven't I given up enough? You know, like here, my whole life has been, um, you know, taken from me in some respects. I'm now here in this concentration camp. I've given so much, and now I'm getting this tiny bit to sustain me every day, and you want me to give that away. That would have been my response. Um, but she, she told her story. She wasn't boasting. She just said very matter-of-factly, the Lord said to me to give it away. And then she just said this little line that stayed with me ever since I heard it. She said, in that place, sharing your food is like sharing your very life. And she did it. And I've, I've pondered that for years. And one of the questions that I've asked is, what, what motivates a person in a place like that when you've lost so much? What motivates someone to give even more away? And I wonder if part of the answer to that is that she saw it as worship. In the same way it was worship when she sang in that toilet, it was worship when she sat in that dining hall and handed over half of her small portion of food. She saw it as worship. And one of the things that's so clear in the Bible, and I've just been rereading some of it, it's just come home to me in a new way this last week, is that how we treat those who are poor, whether by that we mean people who are poor because they have no money, or poor because they have no relationships, um, people who are poor because they have very few opportunities uh, that come their way in life, people who are poor because their health is very bad. The way that we treat those who are poor, um, those who are on the edge of our society, the last and the least and the lost, the marginalized and the dispossessed, the way that we treat people who are in that situation, that is part of our worship. And this is something that Sometimes we can struggle to get, I know I have, and we're not alone. The people of Israel, they, they followed God, they were his chosen people, um, but they struggled to get this as well. 
And if you read their story, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God um, repeatedly reminds them that worship to him, to live a life of worship to him, it's to do everything we've just been doing. And that's why we talked about it last week, the priority of intimacy with him. Everything flows from that space. Um, at the same time, it's this other stuff. And when we do the one without the other, when we sing the songs, but we don't seek to live a life of justice, we miss something huge. And there are certain passages in the Bible that communicate um, God's heart and how he feels about this. And so I'm just going to read you a couple of extracts from the prophets and just listen to the passion that God has when he speaks to the people. So this is in Amos chapter 5. And God says to the people of Israel through Amos this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And the reason what he's saying there is he's talking about their equivalent of going to church on a Sunday and singing some songs. I hate that. And the reason he's saying it is because they were doing that whilst also exploiting those who had hardly anything. And so he goes on. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is what I'm interested in. And we can think, Lord, how do, I, how do I please you? What is it that you want from me? If I want to bring an offering of worship, something to express my love to you, what can I bring you? And he answers that question for us. This is in Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you, our God. To act justly. And so hear his heart there. And it's been said that, um, you know, if God says something once in the Bible, he means it. And if he says something twice, he really means it. And on this subject, what we do with our money and our possessions in the light of the dispossessed and the marginalized, this comes up, this, this is a huge theme throughout the scripture. So in the New Testament alone, it, there are 300 verses that speak to this issue. Um, that's one in every 16 verses in the New Testament. If you were to just take, take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one in every 12 verses. If we were to take just Luke's Gospel, it's one in every 10 verses. In the letter, um, uh, James's letter, it's one in every seven. So, so this is what he calls us to do, and this is part of our worship. Getting that... How do we respond? Because for me, as I've looked at these passages again, I've, honestly, I have struggled. And I, I think part of the reason I've struggled is because of what I see when I look at myself in the mirror and I see the way that my life is. And I can feel at times like I haven't got any time. And I'm, you know, like things are pretty pressured already. The cost of living has gone up. It's, it's already, I feel like I haven't got very much capacity. And one of the things that I've noticed has happened in me 
is over the last couple of years as we've had to deal with the pandemic and then we've had, you know, we're now in the cost of living crisis and everything else that's going on, is I've just noticed in myself just a turning inwards. Just like I've got to look after me. I've got to look after number one. So I'm not sure I can give a lot more. And if you can connect with that and if these kind of things, if, if, they, make, if they make you feel guilty, um, then I'm, I'm on the same page. And what I've been realizing afresh is the, the medicine to this so if we turn inwards and, and we, we struggle in this area, the medicine is not guilt. Guilt gets us nowhere. You know, it, 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 for a little bit, we might be out of guilt, give to somebody or help somebody out for a little while, but then we'll forget about it and we won't do it for very long. The, the medicine that we need when we're turned inwards is not guilt, it's grace. It's, it's, it's a revelation of his grace. And as we see his grace, as we receive it for ourselves again, that becomes the engine that allows us to serve those who, who, who are struggling for the long haul and with warm hearts and out of, out of joy and out of overflow. So that's what we need. And as I've looked at the... Um, the New Testament again, you know, if he's saying, Lord, show me what's meant to motivate me in this area. Would you just stuff just jump off the page and like speak to my heart. And there've been two things that have really leapt out as I think about, you know, what, what, why should I do this? Why should I give what I have to help somebody else? And here's the first one. The first reason we should do this. It's not about should, actually. The first reason why wouldn't we want to do this is this. The way that we have been loved. And so Jesus tells one of his most famous stories, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't know if you're um, uh, familiar with it. I'm not going to read it. But to sum it up, he says, in response to a question, who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Jesus tells a story. There's a guy walking down a really dangerous road who's attacked and beaten up and left for dead. And now he's lying there, almost dead, by the side of the road. And somebody comes past who is a priest uh, who's just been working in the temple. He sees this guy in trouble. He crosses to the other side and he carries on going. And then a little while later, um, a worship leader kind of walks past, sees this person, a Levite in those days they were called, crosses to the other side of the road and walks past. Now, we might be shocked if a priest does it, like myself, a pastor, a little less shocked if a worship leader did it. But anyway, they're walking past. And then he says, and this is the shock, horror, punch of the story, a Samaritan walks past. And in those days, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. They were, they were natural enemies. Um, the Jews would actually pray, please let there be no Samaritans in heaven at the last day. They would actually say a formal prayer like that. So they hated each other. So he says a Samaritan walks past, and the Samaritan sees this Jewish guy lying, dying by the side of the road, and crosses towards him. And then helps him out. He binds up his wounds. He, he puts oil on them. He puts bandages on them. He puts him on the donkey. And he takes him to the nearby town. He checks him into a premier inn and says, look, I'll pay for him for a couple of months. And then I'm coming back this way. And if there's anything else on his account that's not covered by what I'm giving you now, I'll cover it when I'm back. I'm good for it. So Jesus tells this story. And in, as, as with all his stories, there's, there's so many layers to it. So... One of the things the story is saying is that love is an action. It's a binding up of somebody's wounds. It's a paying of somebody's bills. Another thing the story is saying is Jesus is telling us that our enemy, uh, or rather our, that our neighbor, is, is anybody in need. Who are we to help? Anyone in need. Um, even if they happen to be our enemy. So he's saying that. But there's also this truth in there when we look at it through the lenses of the gospel. Because the question I've asked is, who am I in this story? Am I the priest? Sometimes I feel like I am. 
just spent ages singing songs to God at the temple and then walked past somebody in need? Am I the Levite? Maybe I am. Am I the good Samaritan? I hope so, sometimes. Who am I in the story? But through the lenses of the gospel, what we see is before we're any of these three, the person that we are is we are the person lying beaten up by the side of the road. That's, that's who first and foremost we are when we understand the gospel in this story. We're the person who's been beaten up, who's left wounded, who because of our sin, we found ourselves wounded to the point where we cannot heal ourselves. And the one who comes to us is, as it were, the Samaritan, the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan of heaven, who though we are his, his natural enemy, he comes to us anyway. And he gets beside us and through the cross and giving up his own life, what he does is he heals our wounds. And he binds us with the oil of the Spirit to bring healing to our hearts. And then, he's, as it were, he puts us on the back of his promises and carries us into the Father's house for all eternity. And if ever we make a mistake, or if ever you know, our inadequacies get pointed out to us, what he, what he says is, hey, you can chalk that up to my account. You know, that mistake they make, you can you put that on my tab. I'm good for it. He's loved us in this way. And, and understanding that, the heart of the gospel, that though we didn't deserve it, he came to save us, that is the motivation for helping anybody else. Because when we get the truth of that, what we realize is that I'm looking at somebody and I'm thinking, maybe they don't deserve help. Maybe they're, they're in that place because of their own fault. You know, oh my word, I, you know, I, I've, I have, it's going to be very expensive for me. I've got a lot of other things I need to be doing with my time. But I'm looking, I'm weighing up, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And then what I need to realize afresh is that if I'm looking at somebody like that, I am in fact looking in a mirror. I'm looking in a mirror because they don't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. The cost is great. The cost was enormous for what he did for me. It, it's like this is... To help another is an overflow of understanding how much we have been loved. That's the first thing that jumps out. Here's the second thing and the second why we do this. is to understand not just how much we have been loved, but to understand who. When we help somebody who is struggling, someone who's marginalized, who it is we are loving. And for this, Jesus tells us another story. And you can find this one in Matthew chapter 25. It's basically like he says in the story. Let's fast forward to uh, Judgment Day. And at Judgment Day, there is a king. And before him are all the peoples of the world. And what the king does is he divides them into two groups. This is the story of the sheep and the goats. You can read it in Matthew 25 if you want to. But he turns to the, the sheep who are the righteous, the king does. And this is what he says to them. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous, they, they, they're, they're confused and they say, when did we do this? We didn't see you. And his response is this. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. You did it for me. And 
what he's saying there is the way that you treat this person in need, the thirsty or the hungry or the prisoner, the way that you treat that person, you're treating me like that. And I remember hearing this story, I think, I don't know if it's made up or if it's not, but it was about a wealthy, elderly, elderly lady. And she didn't have any kids. And she was, you know, she knew she didn't have long left. And she, she was trying to work out, who, who do I pass my wealth on to? Uh, her closest relative was an, a nephew that she had. And, um, but she wanted to be sure that he was the right person to give it to. And what she noticed is that whenever he was around her, he was always very nice. And he was always very attentive to what she needed and all of that stuff. But she'd heard rumors that around other people, he wasn't quite so nice. And she thought, this is no small thing giving my wealth away. I need to be sure he's the right person. How can I find out? So what she decided to do is one day she dressed in really raggedy clothes, really tattered garments that sort of made herself look not like herself and like her life was incredibly difficult and she had nowhere to live. And then she went down to his house early one morning and um, lay on the doorstep of his beautiful townhouse. And he came out of his house one day. He saw this woman lying there in his eyes, just a homeless woman camping out on his front steps. And he shouted at her and he said, get out of here, otherwise I'm going to call the police. And, and she, in that moment, she knew what his real nature was like. She knew what he was like. And the point is this. Jesus is saying when he tells us this story, I am the poor person lying on your doorstep. That is me. And how you treat that, that person in, with that need, that is how you're treating me, is what he's saying. And the strength of this, this wording is, is, is so powerful. In the Old Testament, he, he talks about how God identifies with the poor, with the widow, with the orphan, with those who have no one to speak for them. God identifies symbolically in the Old Testament with those people. And then in the New Testament, he takes it so much further because he becomes one of us. It's not symbolic anymore. It's literal. Jesus is born and they put him in a feeding trough for animals. They're in poverty. When, um, when his mum and dad... Mary, Mary and Joseph, they go to offer a sacrifice for Jesus because that's what you would do when you were dedicating your, your baby son. They would offer a sacrifice. We're told in the scripture that the price for them was two pigeons. And there was a sliding scale depending on how wealthy you are. That was what the poorest people would give. Two pigeons. They did that because they were the poorest. Jesus, when he grows up, we're told that he has nowhere to lay his head. In his final week of his life, he rides into Jerusalem and he's had to borrow a donkey to ride in. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he has the final meal with his disciples, the Last Supper, and he does that in a room that they've borrowed. And then he's, he's put to death on the cross and they lay him in a tomb that is also borrowed. So his final year of his life, he rides on a borrowed donkey, eats in a borrowed room and gets ultimately laid in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. He is the poor. And Mother Teresa... Somebody once said to her, like, what, you know, why do you do what you do? Her response was not to tell stories of um, the poor people that she was helping, those who were suffering. Her response was to say, I do it for Jesus. It's for him. She used to talk about the gospel on five fingers, quoting Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew, you did it for me. The gospel on five fingers. And that's why it's worship. It's 
for him and it's to him. And that's why we don't do it in order to get something in the hope that if we give someone this, we'll hook them into the kingdom. We long for people to come to faith. I don't think there's many more effective ways of sharing the kingdom of heaven through, than through acts of love and acts of kindness. But before any of that, we do it for him. It's, it's who are we loving when we love this person? We're loving him. And when we, when we grasp this, we begin to step into this and it becomes a joy. It becomes an adventure. This is not a burden. This is a joy. This is a privilege. And in our society, what we can end up thinking is, oh, either live for yourself and be happy or live for other people and be miserable. But what Jesus says, no, is the way to find our lives, there's another path, is to lose our lives. Is as we give away, as the Good Samaritan becomes not just a story that we read about, but a, a life that we're acting, then that's where the adventure begins. And one of the things that I love about being part of this church is that we're doing this together. We go on this adventure together as a family, and we can do more together. Um, you know, in some churches, they pass, when they do the offering, they pass a plate around. And, um, and I remember hearing about Soul Survive, I don't know how it was in the very early days, but we didn't do the offering in the way that we do it now. And then Mike and a little group ended up um, going to South Africa. And they were in a church in a township in South Africa where, where they have materially nothing. And the offering came. And rather than pass a plate around, what they did is they had a little basket at the front. And Mike says, it was like when the time, when the time came for the offering, it was this explosion of joy. Because all these people leapt up and as they sang songs of worship, they danced to the front and then they put their money in the basket and enjoyed dancing back to their seats. And that is why we do it this way here. We copied that church. We nicked the idea. But we thought we're British, so let's not make people dance, all right? So you're allowed to shimmy, but we don't want to embarrass one another. Um, but we do it as joy. It's this joyful thing. Um, they say in churches that your architecture reflects your theology. So some churches, they have a big pulpit, and it's all about proclaiming the word, and that's central here too. Other churches, it's about the altar, and it's about meeting Jesus through the bread and the wine, and that is absolutely key to who we are. But some people might come in here and think they see the band, and they see all this stuff, and think it's a sung worship, and rightly so is a priority for us. But also, what I hope people see is these crates either side full of non-perishable food items and disposable nappies. Right next to the keyboard and right next to the drum kit, right next to the lectern where the word of God is preached because it's central to being his people. This is worship for us. This is worship for us. And the, the key becomes, we can't miss this. So it just becomes, how do we live it? And, and together as a family, we're trying to find any and every way that we can to do that. Um, the hardship fund and the meal boxes are, are a key part of that. I'm actually going to get Nicola. I don't know where she is. Nicola? Nicola is involved with this sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've asked her, some stories can't be shared, most of them. But I've asked her to just share a little bit about what she sees when we're doing this kind of stuff. Thank you. Hi, it's really lovely to be able to share with you. I know that many of you have given money to the Hardship Fund, so I'd just love to tell you a few little stories about how that money's been used. Um, as you know, we started the fund at the beginning of the pandemic when we knew people might be struggling. And there's just three stories that I'd love to share with you. Um, in fact, the first person that we ever helped with the Hardship Fund um, rang, rang into the church, their neighbour, they, was, they had lost their job, they were on a zero contract, zero hour contract. 
literally had nothing to eat, didn't know what they were going to do. Um, and their neighbours said, phone my church, they'll be able to help you. And they rang in, and Ali was on the phones that day, took the call, um, and he said, I don't know why I phoned in. My neighbours told me to phone you. You might be able to help me. And as he started to tell her his story, she said, yeah, well, I think we can help you. We have a fund for people like you. And he broke down and said, I can't believe that you care and that you will help me. And so we were able to get food to him that day through our volunteers who went out. And then we put an application together and we were able to support him while he was looking for another job, which he did get in the end. Um, and then he actually got COVID and ended up in hospital. And one of our church, we had asked if they could call him every week when we first met with him, just to see how he's going, see how he's doing. And they had been calling him every week, seeing how he was doing. And when he went into hospital, they were able to phone him in hospital and just pray with him. And it has been an amazing relationship we've had with him. He's not in church, but that's okay. He knows we're here. He knows we care. Um, and his neighbor's still part of his life and supporting him. Um, another story I'd like to share is a man who uh, was homeless. And he was in, gone into a shelter. And then eventually he had got his own flat. Um, and when he got the keys for the flat, he was very excited but in the flat, there, were no, there was no oven um, and no fridge and no funds for him to have that paid for by uh, the, you know, the local council. So a friend put an application in to us here and we were able to buy him this oven and his fridge. Um, and he was so excited and overwhelmed just that we were able to do that for him. And then just another story, a... Um, Lady in our church, her neighbour found out her husband uh, had a terminal illness and they were just absolutely um, devastated, of course. But more than that, he couldn't work and they were going through the benefits application process, which is, is a bit of a, a nightmare sometimes. And they were really struggling for money. So um, this friend in church rang us and said, can I do an application? So we went through and did an application for them. And as a church family, we were able to pay their mortgage, pay for all their food, and just keep them going for the month while they were waiting for this payment to come through, which really blew them away. And um, they were so grateful. And it was such a privilege to spend time with them and do that for them. And as you know, we do the family meal boxes as well. And that, that family um, have also been coming in to collect a family meal box. And he's still alive. And um, it's been, just been incredible because as, they as people come in to collect their family meal box, we've got cafe open. We're selling coffees and we're giving coffees away. As you know, we always do free coffees and teas for anybody. But there's also other people in cafe and a brilliant team. And we just say, come in, you, you know, would you like a coffee, would you like a cake, come on, somebody would love to sit and have a chat with you. Um, and often people do want to stay and sit and talk and just often share their stories. Um, and it's just been amazing because sometimes we've been able to pray with them or also help them in other ways. It's about wrapping people up in love. We know money and food is important. But actually, what people really need is to know that you're loved, we're here, we can support you. 
Um, it's, it's just been incredible. And often um, we've just met people that have now, I, I can tell you three families I know whose children are next door or have been next door because they came in to collect a family mailbox and found home and a place where they felt safe. And it's really been um, absolutely amazing um, and such a privilege to be part of it. Isn't that amazing? Brilliant. <clears throat> And we're doing it together. And, and that, we together are doing. You might think, well, I haven't been directly involved in that. Well, as a family, we are. And, and this is why church, one of the reasons why church matters, all of our reach gets longer when we do it together. Uh, it's as much part of our worship as what we're doing here. And, and the final thing I'll say as we finish is, um, for us personally, one of the things that always slightly freaks me out when I watch the news or I hear about the problems that there are in our world is it's, it's overwhelming. I don't know if you ever feel that, but it's like, what, what difference can I possibly make? When you meet someone and you know someone and their, their, their situation is really complex and it's like, what can I do? And I, I often think that. And when I do, I have to remind myself of a story I heard years and years ago. You may well have come across it. But it's about this old man who's walking along a beach one morning and there's been a storm in the night. And in the night, thousands of tiny little starfish were washed up on the beach. And as he's walking along, he sees this, this lad coming down the opposite end of the beach. And the lad every now and then bends down, picks up one of these starfish and chucks it in the sea. And when the, the man gets to him, he says, what are you doing, you know? Um, and the boy says to him, well, these starfish, they got washed up and they can't make their way back into the sea. So they're going to die. You know, when the sun gets really up to the height, they're all going to die. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm trying to save their lives and I'm throwing them back in. And then the guy just looks up and down this stretch of beach and he just says, but there's tens of thousands of starfish here. What difference can you possibly make? And in response to that, the little boy, he bends down, picks up a starfish, and then says, it made a difference to that one. And that's the point. It makes a difference to that one. And maybe we can't change the whole world, but we can change somebody's world. Mother Teresa, um, again, this is the kind of question she would get asked all the time. She, she once gave this piece of advice. Never worry about numbers. Love one person at a time and always start with the person in front of you. This, as much as what we talked about last week, this is part of our worship. We have been loved oh, beyond comprehension. We give away to people just like us, broken and lost with no way of helping themselves because he's loved us so extravagantly. And as we do it, we're loving him. You did it for me. Amen.